Hello, Petey. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble. My culture is based on freedom and self-determination. Freedom is irrelevant. Self-determination is irrelevant. You must comply. That's right, boys. Mondo cool. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. My plans have followed a path unpredicted by the union of NAR and GDI. I want the people of America to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves. Historical Diversions History Over Drinks The following is part two of my interview with archaeologist and educator Dr. Ed Barnhart. If you haven't already, part one is in our archives for you to enjoy. I know I did making it. If you'd like to support him and his work, check out the Archaeoed podcast on your favorite podcast app, on YouTube, and archaeoed.com. I had a great time with this interview, so who knows? Maybe our paths will cross again someday. Without further ado, Dr. Ed Barnhart, part two. Because, uh, and I can't recommend the Wondrium uh, Great Courses content enough, um, but right now, uh, for prep for this interview, I've been watching uh, the Mesoamerican one in particular. Um, so I may, and I'm going to ask you a few questions, and hopefully they're not too, uh, hopefully they're not too crazy. Um Chichen Itza in particular is probably one of the most interesting places, and I'll probably go out on a limb and say probably one of the most interesting places in all of history, period. But especially considering how famous it is, it seems like we know relatively little about it in comparison to like some of the other sites. Uh, do you think that part of Chichen Itza's appeal is because we don't know as much especially about like the start of it or do you think it's one of those things where some places are just really really interesting places and it doesn't really matter if we know 100 percent about everything or even if it's just five percent well let me start by asking you to qualify are you saying like other sites in terms of global archaeological sites or maya i think it's one of those interesting places especially when you look at like uh you know, that there was still discussion of like, oh, was Tula, you know, was Tula first and then it inspired Chichen Itza or did Chichen Itza help inspire Tula? That right there. Well, which one was first, the chicken or the egg? Well, depends on what your, you know, depends on what is what. And and even just how um, when you take a look at Chichen Itza and how finely made uh, like El Castillo was at Chichen Itza versus uh, Mayapan and how different like the observatories were there that well clearly you know the people of Mayapan and the people at Chichen Itza looked at things that it's like oh this is important but one was more finely made well what were the you know what made one so much better and to me I think Chichen Itza is one of those places that is just fascinating just just in general well you're speaking of the choir there for sure <laughs> um you know, I do love that site, and I think part of it is its monumentality and the uh, proliferation of art there. I mean, you you can, 
anybody who walks around there, even for the small hour and a half you get to do so from a cruise ship, walks away appreciating uh, what in amazing artists they were, all of this in stone. And uh, you know, I myself, when I walk around a place like that, think, you know, we are seeing such a tiny fraction of what this city must have looked like when you're surrounded in these beautiful jungles with all sorts of animals and birds and plants. I mean, so much there must have been made out of wood and feathers and pelts, and there must have been just, you know, it, so much color, uh, really just amazing uh, that you think, uh, I think people tend to still consider people like the Maya as kind of uh, simplistic almost you know almost savages like you know just really rudimentary people when it, and when you walk in there and you're faced with this just absolutely world-class art and things so complex that you uh you can't even wrap your head around it what are they trying to say here this is such a huge elaborate scene this means something a lot of things and and i have no idea People walk away from that sort of thing just astounded. That and and, and it does convey this uh, mystery. People walk away like just, what the heck was that? <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's fun. Everybody loves a mystery, right? Exactly, and especially it's one of those things that, you know, we live in an age of food surpluses. We live in an age where communication is instantaneous. We live in an age where we just expect things to happen almost. And especially like in the ancient world, I think it's one of those things that at least to me that I have such a hard time wrapping my head around is that it's like, no, things were really hard. Like things were hard. You had to, you know, you it, these projects, these were not, oh, we'll get a few cranes in. It was like, no, they had to do it. And especially like programs like Ancient Alien saying that it was like, oh, they couldn't do that. I just think that just belittles the accomplishment that it was like, no, they did this in spite of, you know, the quote unquote limitations that they've had. But it's like, but they still did it anyway. And to me, like, that's even more amazing that it was like, this is how they prioritized their world. And to me, where like there are certain theorists where I'm like, okay, I may disagree with the conclusions, but at least I can see they're respecting it. A lot of the ancient alien stuff from when I watch it, I'm like, you know, it's the it's the meme that it's like, oh, we don't know exactly every little detail, therefore aliens. And to me, especially a site like Chichen Itza, it's an amazing site to behold. And if you think that the people were savages, well, well, of course they couldn't have done it, but it's like, well, then maybe they weren't, you know, the stereotype that, uh, you know, that you may have had in your head, you know, sort of thing. Uh, yeah, unless you want to write it off as Atlantis or aliens, you really look at a site like Chichen Itza and you have to conclude that, no, these people were highly motivated and intellectually uh, incredible. That's I think that those sort of... Uh, very just casually racist statements about you know well why would hunters and gatherers uh they they don't have the intellectual capacity or curiosity to create things like this that's that's just racist and uh blatantly false based on the evidence right in front of your face 
they're anatomically modern humans. If you took a baby from today, brought them up then, they would be the same. And if you took, uh, you know, one of their babies and brought them up today, at least to me, it's like they'd be us. Like, and that's that's something that to me is one of those like kind of crazy like sci-fi things that like if you brought, you know, if you brought someone up to today, brought them up to speed. Yeah, they can say it. I was like, oh, well, this because this is this is what matters. We can't do that with, you know, a lot of other animals. We can't do that with like other things. But it's like, but no, their their brain size is the same as ours. Their, you know, their capabilities are the same as ours. And it's just one of those things that especially like I like fringe theories because it's like, okay, it's sometimes they're interesting thought experiments. But then especially like when they go more on the deep end of well they couldn't have done it and it's like just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that they didn't understand it and doesn't mean that they couldn't do it just because you can't understand it sort of thing um, yeah it's a, it's a lack of creativity on our part not theirs um and this is something that uh especially because like while we do have uh written records for some things it's not that we have like a complete history and this this might be a little longer winded question, but uh, you mentioned in your episode on the Maya pond that the Maya had tolerated and to a point even kind of embraced like the uh, Pocheca, uh, Pochteca, excuse me, Pochteca uh, Aztec traders in their territory. And we knew that these traders were like diplomats, but they were also spies and recon for the Aztec empire as well. And you mentioned that the Aztec at European contact was poised to invade the Maya territories of the Yucatan. And it's one of those things that I'm one of those, like, I'm one of those natural scientist people that I'm like, I'm assuming we don't have their battle plans, like in a nice little leather bound binder that said, oh yes, we're planning on taking over these sites. Um, kind of a two part question. It's like, how do we know that that was their goal? And then uh, was it something that, uh, like, was it maybe the occupation of Tulum, for example? Or do you think that, uh, and then kind of a third part question, do you think that the Aztecs would have done well, kind of a fantasy booking, do you think the Aztecs would have done well militarily against the Maya if the Europeans hadn't shown up? Okay. Um, well, first of all, uh, we know that they were working on the Maya of the Yucatan because this was their standard playbook and they had already gone through the whole plan multiple times in low, in other regions. All of Veracruz was taken over in a similar fashion, first trade relationships and then military takeover, all of Oaxaca. They had also done it all through the Guatemalan highlands. And uh, and that one is where we really get into, you know, those are Maya, too. And those were Maya who were uh, easier in some regards to subjugate because they were distinct language groups that didn't always get along with each other. And they had built defensive cities and had a kind of distrust of each other and also a natural isolation from each other being up in the mountains. So the uh, the Aztecs were easily able to divide them, to put wedges between them, to you know highlight trade relationships with one against another. And uh, 
And so they played them and, and were able to take them over in a way that I think it would have taken them longer to do in the Yucatan because the Yucatan, even though Mayapan had fallen apart, they still had a unified language and they had centuries of working together. Mm. Um, and so I think it would have taken them longer to get the interior. They were they were teasing around the outside. We can tell from the murals at Tulum that they were there and changing the art and changing the buildings. They had that huge center of trade that was basically the the doorway into the Maya world. That was where you know near where Ciudad Carmen and Villahermosa are today, where where Cortez oh. picked up La Malinche. That was, you know, La Malinche, it was great for him because she spoke both Maya and Aztec. And she did so because she lived in one of these communities that was the Aztec gateway into that world. I think it probably would have taken them a while to get into the interior if they even cared to. But they they were on the march and they had we, we know they were going to do it because they had done it to every other culture on the road to the Maya. There was no no reason for them to stop then and no sign that they were about to. And that makes sense. And and this is something that, you know, moving away from like the hypothetical if the Europeans hadn't shown up, well, once the Europeans, the Spanish had shown up, uh, you had mentioned in your episode on the Spanish uh, conquest of the Aztec, especially with the way that the Aztecs uh, political hierarchy was laid out, I mean, Almost as soon as they took over Tenochtitlan, it was like, well, they've got, you know, now the Spanish, you know, under new management, uh, you know, Aztecs under new management. Now we're the Spanish. Uh, you had mentioned that Cortez's Aztec scouts had reported to him that the Maya still needed to be invaded, even after Maya representatives had they were like, oh, no, we're 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 with you. And I'm just curious, and this may be reading a little too much into the episode, but I'm just curious if if this was a final, if the Aztecs had, you know, uh, either a hatred or strong dislike of the Maya, was it a situation where even if the Maya said, yeah, we're, we're fine with the Spanish, we'll continue things as it is, and the Aztec scouts are saying, no, you need to go in and take them out, was this kind of a... And I'm going to probably screw up the German, uh, like a Gotterdammerung situation where the scouts thought to themselves, if we're done and our civilization is getting conquered and killed, everyone else is going down with it? Or is that kind of a gross oversimplification of what the situation was at that time? Gosh, I don't know if I have a good response to that one. I mean, it, it, I, I don't think that the Aztecs had an animosity towards the Maya. The Maya had a continue to have an animosity towards the Aztecs. But uh, I don't think they wanted, uh, I don't think it was out of spite that they mm -hmm. made that kind of suggestion. It was probably more along the lines, if anything, that the Aztecs had an understanding of just how many Maya there were, okay. where the Spanish had only been skirting along the uh, the coastline they, you know, they really did not have an understanding that there were, you know, tens of thousands of Maya living around Lake Pitanitsa and all of those areas of the jungle, that there were so, so, so many people in there. Probably the Aztecs had a 
understanding that like no no that's not that's not the population you see that's a fraction that is a a lot of people <laughs> that makes sense um and to kind of go like a little more uh a little more general and uh, probably a little more current um since you're the president of the Maya Exploration Center, and to those who um, haven't heard of it, uh, one, you didn't listen to the intro that I gave, which is unfortunate, but hey, let's reiterate it. The Maya Exploration Center is a nonprofit dedicated to the study of ancient America, with especially the emphasis of the Maya in particular. And I'm curious as... I'll call you a non-traditional educator, you know, even doing an interview like this is something that I haven't gotten from, you know, from other people, but just even your One Dream courses, uh, your podcast, um, as a non-traditional educator, how do you like what you're doing now versus working at a university? You've had some experience teaching anthropology classes. Um, how do you like doing like this particular type of work versus something more in like an academic setting? By this kind of work, you mean uh, out in the field with Maya Exploration Center or this yeah. kind of? Yep, yep. Well, I I much prefer it, really. I, I did go the, uh, the traditional university route for a while at what's now Texas State University. But, uh, you know, I had had all these adventures out in the field, and it's really, you know, being out there and thinking on my feet and uh and allowing people to experience it for real rather than just discussing it that's an incredible feeling and i that's that's where i belong <laughs> i belong out there not i you know, it was an irony of my life that i had finally gotten to the point where i could have a professor job if i wanted and shortly into obtaining it i it proved to me i didn't want that job well, no, I enjoy doing these podcasting things and it's uh, it's fun to be able to communicate. And I'm in a different time of life right now. But, you know, when I was uh, in my mid 20s, I was like, oh, my God, am I going to spend the rest of my life teaching intro to cultural anthropology to people who clearly don't even care about it and are just in here for the elective? I'll, <laughs> this is this is not what all these amazing experiences ended up being. I've got to get out of here and and get back to the life that inspired me was it something that when you were when you were teaching classes was it something that you were uh determining the curriculum or was it something where you know working at texas state you were yep this is the curriculum we want you to teach and this is how we want you to teach it or was it something that you had a little more leeway with but you were more like uh, just even in a classroom, this isn't learning the way that uh, I think learning should be done sort of thing. Well, it depended on the class that I was teaching. But yes, especially the uh, the the core intro classes, I had a textbook and I was expected to teach that textbook. And if I had time left over, I could do my own topics. And every once in a while, just to, you know, uh, stave off madness, I would just, you know, the, today I'm talking about what I want to talk about. Put that book away. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it, it was yeah. very much I literally wrote. <laughs> That's and it's one of those things that especially uh, it actually dissuaded me into going into archaeology because I assumed it was going to be more. OK, you're either, you know, the shovel digger or you're at a, you know, an academic position. And 
especially after four years of undergrad, to me, I was like, I want to go out and work. I want to go out and see things. And in my early 20s, it was very easy for me to be, oh, I'm working for a medical examiner's office. Oh, I'm doing a lot of scene work. And then as I got older, okay, I actually want to be sleeping at one in the morning, so I'll be doing more lab work. And it was one of those things that, uh, especially given like new mediums and different ways of learning, uh, it's very interesting. Like, I'm, I'm curious to see how the next few decades are going to work in terms of education, especially considering how not a lot of people can just be in a classroom and just sit there and absorb material. Even something like a Wondrium or Great Courses, I'm not sure if I ever would have taken a class on, uh, you know, on Mesoamerica, but for, you know, 10 bucks a month or whatever it is, I have all of your courses. Uh, I think it's about 120 episodes. And it's one of those things that I'm like, this wasn't even a thing a few years ago. <laughs> it is neat how uh, education is more accessible than it's ever been before through these amazing communication technologies. Okay. Though it is a, it's also an irony that the uh, the amazing amount of communication technologies we have have produced more isolated individuals than ever before. Our, our communication uh, technology allows us to have things like this, where yes, you and I are communicating, but we're actually in separate rooms, hundreds of miles away, sitting alone. It's a it's it's a weird irony that it's actually physically separated humans. Well, and it's especially interesting how at least like to me, it's one of those things that especially when we take down like some of the some of the barriers that we've had historically where I mean, geography was a huge one. If I mean, I would have necessarily never even heard of you if we were, you know, exclusive to like our particular ends of the country and now we're in a world where it literally is a world system and i'm i'm very curious because i think especially in terms of education where we still have you know we're using you know in in uh, public education like prussian models from you know 100 200 years ago where it was okay well this might have been really good for this particular for this particular time period but now we're I mean, gosh, we're in 2023 now. Is this exactly, you know, the way that we want to do things, you know, for the next, you know, 50 years, 60 years, you know, something like that, which is why I'm fascinated about, uh, you know, your educational tours as far as, uh, you know, the My Exploration Center is concerned. And it's actually one of the things that I found really interesting, uh, just even reading about, you know, some of the places that in Mesoamerica, for me in particular, uh, as a non-Spanish speaker, I'm very hesitant to go to a lot of these places just because I'm like, I don't speak the language, I don't really know. But then I see some of these itineraries uh, of some of your trips and I'm looking and I'm like, I would never have seen some of these places any other way. I'm going to have to take a really long, hard look at these because these are really intriguing. How did you get into uh, taking the, or uh, in terms of uh, creating like these sorts of courses, uh, what was your inspiration into doing that? Actually, it was uh, a professor at the University of Texas that was 
directing things called the Chautauqua programs for uh, college professors in the summer. And he had a guy who was running Maya archaeoastronomy trips every summer for him. But that guy got sick and he was uh, sitting in his office talking to his secretary when my now ex-wife uh, was in the room and he was saying, where will I ever find somebody who knows anything about Maya archaeoastronomy? And she was like, oh, my husband knows and he might be interested in that. And so one thing led to another and he hired me to lead these trips in the Maya area. And so I met these professors and they said, wow, this has been such an amazing experience. I wish I could bring my students on this. And that put a light bulb over my head. I said, well, why can't we? Why don't we talk about that this year? We'll we'll develop a trip and you can bring the students and I'll do the teaching and leading them around. You don't have to worry about all that stuff. And that's where it began. And then there were other people who said, well, I'm not a student, but I still want to learn and I want to go and do these things. Would you Would you do education for the general public trips? And I said, well, sure, let's, let's look into it. And, and I started doing those too. Sadly, nowadays, the study abroad programs are just about gone. Universities charge so much to students and there's so much strange overhead and there's all this political stuff. Everybody's scared to death that their child's going to get kidnapped in Mexico or something. And, you know, when I, when I get the opportunity to bring people down, I show them that it's not that way, but especially when it comes to uh, high school and college level kids, there is more resistance to traveling the world, both financially and politically than ever in my lifetime. So I, I do more and more public education things these days and less for students, which is a shame because those are the guys that are going to change the world and could use the information now. All these retirees like, you know, that's information you could have used 30 years ago. <laughs> Well, it's definitely one of those things when when I was in college and and now I'm looking at it as, oh, my gosh, that was <laughs> that was longer ago than even for someone like me would have liked to admit. But one of the places I've always wanted to see was Teotihuacan. And you're talking, you know, not even an hour away from Mexico City. And I look at Mexico City and immediately like the hair stands up on the back of my neck and I'm like, that shouldn't be that way. It's a very, it's a wide world out there to explore. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that sometimes we have to get beyond like our own biases sometimes where it's like, okay, well, you've heard this. Okay, fair enough. But that isn't necessarily the whole story. And in an age of, in the age of, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation and fake news, well, just because you heard something doesn't mean it's exactly true which is why I see like courses, uh, you know, that are, you know, the study abroad people for people that aren't necessarily in college anymore. And those are things that, you know, as soon as, as soon as I can, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely interested and would recommend something like that just based on, uh, based on everything I see, I look at it and I'm, I'm excited to talk with you off air a little bit about it. <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, it, Mexico City is a lovely place. And uh, one of the pleasures of my job is to bring folks down there, kind of break through those myths. I feel like uh, oftentimes what I'm doing is a grassroots movement. I'm just talking to one person at a time, affecting folks' uh, attitudes and minds. And there's 
I, I love it when I see somebody who's come down with me with a lot of, you know, hesitations and worries. And then they're the next year they're on their own trip. You know, hey, I went back to Oaxaca and look at me. I'm walking around in the streets and I'm taking this uh, cooking class from a woman up in the mountains. And, you know, I, the, the ability to to guide people into uh, losing some of those prejudices and fears and realizing, you know, just what nice, kind folks there are in a lot of these places that we worry about, that the news tells us to worry about. Uh, there's a lot of people who just, uh, once they've come around with me a little bit, you know, I've worked myself out of a job. Next time they, they go on their own because I, I taught them that they don't need to be scared of it. I'm a lot more worried walking in an American city than I am in a Mexican city. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, and especially for certain cities, there's definitely some where uh, one of my friends, he was uh, he was in Iraq as a military guy and he was National Guard there. And, you know, the history person in me, I'm thinking of ancient Assyria and Mesopotamia. And I'm like, oh, I want to go to these places. And he's like, there are some really good people there. And there are not some really good people there. And that's in a place like Iraq. But part of the reason I even want to go to places like that is because, well, just even if you walk around some of these places, you can realize what history has been done there. And, you know, and it's one of those things that, you know, in other areas of my life, I'm very much a capitalist. But in certain ways, I'm like, well, history is a legacy for all of us. Like, it's one of those things that... You know, you don't have to have an exclusive right to know, you know, what the cultures of like Mesoamerica or South America or any of these places. And and that's simply an issue of like education and to kind of pivot. And uh, and I know I've I've gone a little bit past past our time, but I and I want to make sure that I, you know, convey how appreciative I am. Um I want to ask, especially in terms of for people like my ideal for my podcast listeners is people that didn't think they were interested in history because they didn't like the teacher or they didn't know much about the content that it was like, no, there was actually really interesting stuff here. I actually got into history by watching channels like the History Channel, and I actually read uh, especially early on, a lot of Graham Hancock's books. And he's enjoyed a recent resurgence based on his Netflix show. And to me, that was one of those uh, one of those things that that was my starting point. Um, a lot of people probably became interested in archaeology just based on the Indiana Jones movies. Um, in terms of educating the public about history, do you think like, quote unquote, like popular histories like that do it a disservice in the long term or if it ends up just being a starting point the way that it was for you the way that it was for uh way that it was for me is there anything inherently wrong if that's a starting point or do you think that certain fringe theories or you know inaccurate portrayals of you know archaeology do you think that hurts long term well I think first and foremost, I think the former that, uh, you know, however folks are inspired to learn more is a good thing. And be it, you know, Graham Hancock or Ancient Aliens or uh, Indiana Jones, a lot of times, you know, people take a casual interest in what entertains them. I think that there is a 
a painful amount of archaeological literature that is boring as snot. <laughs> it's just not, you know, it's not the sort of thing that inspires. And that's a that's a problem within my field. I think that uh, sometimes academia thinks they have to be, you know, uh, serious and boring or they don't look professional where, uh, you know, a, a little bit of uh, zing and bling around here. That's OK. That's just getting people's attention. That's the world we live in. But on the other hand, there are moments where shows like Ancient Aliens and Graham Hancock's latest uh, Ancient Apocalypse are, uh, on the one hand, robbing the achievements of uh, our ancestors uh, by explaining them away that they were incapable of them, so there had to be an alternate explanation. Those are Those are negative things. And I believe in today's world, there's a, you know, uh, an unfortunate amount of people who are looking for, you know, confirmation bias. They have a worldview already and, uh, you know, they can, they can basically weaponize things like ancient apocalypse to uh, further their wrongheaded worldview of, you know, white supremacy or whatever else it is. And, and I believe that, uh, let's just go ahead and say Graham Hancock has been very defensive about that. He is not a racist. I don't think he's a racist. Uh, you know, he's uh, uh, but he uh, sidesteps the issue that people can use what he is theorizing to forward their own racist ideas and support their own racist ideas. And I think he, he, I wish he would be stronger in that repudiation uh, but I think he keeps a little quiet because, you know, it's uh, it, it would narrow his demographic to, to do otherwise. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't I don't I don't like talking bad about anybody. But uh, but I do think that uh, it's easy in this world to have what you believe is interesting to you and innocent to you to be conscripted by those who would do something wrong with it and. There, therein lies the danger of these otherwise harmless theorizing about aliens and Atlantis and things. Yeah, well, and especially like at least in my reading, um, I haven't, I haven't read as much of his latest work, and unfortunately, my wife uh, discontinued our Netflix account as soon as uh, <laughs> Graham Hancock's show showed up, and it was one of those things where I was like, ah, of course, uh, we can we can take heart that we still have uh, Hulu and some of these other things, but at least in terms of like what I've read before, it's especially easy to like look at you know, certain portrayals, like, you know, if you take a look at, you know, oh, well, there was this white skinned person or, oh, there was this, you know, uh, like even in the Olmec uh, artwork where there's like, oh, there's people wearing turbans. That's really weird. I can totally see where that, where, you know, that little seed can have the germ of, oh, well, it was because the people that were there were this and there were superior people like over here. But at least in terms of Graham Hancock's work that I read, the worst thing that I ended up reading is that it seemed like he read too much into certain things and then took, you know, huge liberties in terms of hypothesizing like alternative explanations without doing the due diligence that a lot of archaeologists end up having to do just based on the nature of the field uh, and scientists in general. And he's been fairly, 
negative on, uh, he said, quote unquote, materialistic science. And it's one of those things that, well, we've actually gained quite a bit from materialist science in terms of pharmaceuticals and other things. But it's it's one of those things that at least like for me, it was it was a, a start to start appreciating that it was like I hadn't even heard of some of these sites until I had read about it in uh, in one of his books. And it to me, especially like as a starting point, I don't see any harm in it, but it was definitely one of those things that I've seen other interpretations that I tend to be a little bit harsher on ancient aliens because I think they sometimes go way overboard on their interpretation of like, well, this couldn't have been done just because you know, we can't figure it out. And it's like, well, what's your expertise in terms of figuring out like, well, how do you know they didn't know how to figure this out? Well, I just know. Have you even been to any of these sites? Well, no, but okay, well, <laughs> there you go. Um, and as, Hancock uh, is is very well read. I would say that, you know, he's as, at least as well read as I am, if not more. It's just a question of the... Uh, the theories we tend we we choose to forward based on the same set of facts and information and uh you know what he does oftentimes you know his like i just said you know there are people that can conscript his theories and he's welcome to have his theories to um to support their own hurtful world views today that are not helping us in modern times it's all it's it seems innocent enough to theorize about the past, but when people are using it to legitimize their bad behavior in the now, that's that's a problem. And he also does, you know, what what medical science would call a uh, you know a diagnosis of exclusion. Yeah, like uh, well, I mean, since we can clearly say that hunter and gatherers lack the motivation or intellectual capacity to build this, we have to exclude that as a possibility. And now we have to go to more outlandish possibilities that we have no artifact proof for. But since we've already decided intellectually that they can't, that that couldn't have happened, then now we have to go to more outlandish things. But we got to back up and say, hold on, that that initial premise that uh, he certainly forwarded in that uh, ancient apocalypse that that's that's defamatory and and uh, a false. Uh, a false conclusion. Now he's, you know, he's got another book that you, uh, your, your wife wouldn't want you to read, called uh, uh, America Before. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. And and I, I have only read the cliff notes of the book, so you know, uh, forgive me if I'm if I'm wrong. But the cliff notes have said uh, that in the end, his conclusion is that uh, archaic Americans must have been telepathic. Uh, and that's how so much of this information got spread around, which that that sounds that sounds like a pretty, pretty far out on a limb to me. Yeah, I've only read the Cahokia chapter uh, just to kind of see like what the in in my research uh, as far as Cahokia goes. I'm like, oh, I'm just curious, like what the what the popular version is. And I actually thought it was very interesting in comparison to like where I've heard him. Uh, hypothesize about like the Egyptian pyramids or like the Maya pyramids, for example, where I thought Cahokia was relatively tamer. But I also wonder if part of it was that it was like, well, maybe there wasn't that much to propose a particular 
propose a particular theory and no no i, I think yeah. he's just he's in control of the literature he has read uh Palkatek's book all these things and he's a great and engaging writer you know i wish that more people uh mainstream my colleagues uh could write as well as graham hancock does and and when he when, when he's marshalling all those facts in that chapter there i mean i could i could read that chapter and say i agree with everything or i i can i can verify everything he's saying these are all out of archaeology it's just you know that last five yards yeah where he makes the conclusion that that jumps the ship for me yeah and it actually is something that i remember reading underworld uh one of his books and it was actually kind of a slog because he cited so many things, it actually did remind me more of like an academic text where it's like, oh, and then he's got this source and then this source. And then I want to divert and take a look at the other source. And it was like, wow, this is actually way more source than I had originally thought. And in terms of being well read, and especially as we're finishing up here, um, one of the things I'm curious on, uh, just even doing uh, research into Cahokia in general, man, it is very easy to go down the rabbit hole that as soon as I think, oh, maybe I have a little bit of a, you know, command of, you know, the recent knowledge. And then I see, oh my gosh, now there's another book. Oh my gosh, there's another book. Or, oh, here's some more journal articles. Um, as someone who is more on the, uh, I would say more on the front end, especially like, you know, given your career, um, how do you keep up with uh, with all like the recent literature? Is it just you subscribe to a bunch of, uh, you know, professional journals or is it one of those as soon as you open up, you're not going to, you know, the, uh, you know, a particular bookmark It's a, oh, no, I'm actually going to this particular website. How do you keep how do you keep up with uh, all the new literature? Oh, it is a struggle. And I, you know, I, I'll be completely honest and, uh, and say every once in a while, I kind of resent it. It is my, <laughs> uh, it is my field and I'm an avid reader, but I read maybe one book a year for pleasure. And the rest of it, I feel obligated to just try to keep up with this, you know, tidal wave of literature. So many people are out there with, with the social media, uh, you know, I get, I, I don't even look for it really anymore. Just, it just floods into my Facebook and my TikTok and, you know, I'm, and, and all sorts of nice folks, uh, that I've met over the years say like, oh, I saw this article and I thought of you, Ed, mm. so I'm going to send that to you. And I, I like, it's all I can do to keep up with it. I mean, right now, if you could see my desktop over here on the left, there are seven different articles that. That, uh, that I should be reading right now. And uh, I'm about to go to Peru uh, in next week. And I'm going to print out all those articles and read them on the seven-hour plane ride. And I'll I'll have gotten that one done. But it's a, it's a tidal wave. It really is. And, you know, there are great sources. Like if, you, if your question is, you know, where to go for a lot of good uh, information, I highly recommend uh, academia.edu. It's yep. a free resource and it's got a searchable database and it is like all of the old journals. And if you pay extra, you can get the current journals as well. But that old literature is sometimes the best. You know, the funny thing about archaeology is sometimes the the absolutely most insightful papers were written 100 years ago. 
Yeah, and I saw it on your show notes. It doesn't even exist anymore. It's under some shopping mall somewhere in Minnesota, you know? Yeah, well, and that's that's exactly like because it is so hard, there's so much. And I actually came across it by looking at your show notes. Uh, I believe it was for one of your Mississippian episodes. And part of me is like, oh, I'm so glad. And then on the other part is like, I was fine with the books that I had and now I'm seeing more and I can only imagine uh, that, that that is probably, uh, you know, times 50 what you end up experiencing. I I do see a lot. But, you know, I also recognize that today's generation, you know, I have, I, I have five kids, love them to death, and I learn about actual life, <laughs> you know, in today's world from from them all the time. One of the things I clearly see is they like, they like podcasts and videos. They they are literate. They read when they need to. They read lots of things on the internet. But the the way people are learning is changing. And you know you're you're smart to get into the podcast space. This is how we're connecting with the next generation, or how they access learning. My my biggest goal is that people is that people listen, and especially uh, and I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the credit that's due. One of the reasons I got interested in this was especially I had I had gotten a trial subscription for Great Courses Plus. It's now Wondrium. And I saw like literally the first course that I saw that, you know, piqued my interest was ancient North America. And I had the stereotype of that it was the hunter gatherers. It was the bison hunters. Uh, and I think it was the stereotype that was kind of exemplified by uh, Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show where it was, you know, you had you, that, that that was every, you know, Native American civilization. I knew a little bit about, you know, Mesoamerica and South America, but it was very, very enlightening to be able to see that it was like, oh, I'm going to give this a shot. And as soon as I uh, got the format, I was hooked and your great courses uh, was the, you know, that was the snowball effect. And then as soon as I found out you had a podcast, the Archeo Ed podcast that can be found wherever good podcasts are found. Uh, and, and on YouTube, I'm, I'm, I'm so close to getting enough people listening on YouTube where they might actually let me profit from the ads they're already running. That's, I hope that people look at it on YouTube too. I made my first video with the help of a guy named Luke Caverns. Well, that Sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and uh, you know, as we finish up, um, I I can't recommend. Uh, you know, those were the products like the Archeoed podcast now on YouTube, the uh, Wondrium Great Courses uh, content. Uh, Look up the Maya Exploration Center. You know, if you just Google it, you can find it right there. Uh, in terms of your next project, because you strike me as somebody who is looking for the next thing. Uh, what's the next big project? Um, is there anything that you have in the can right now that you can share with us? And how can we support it? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been fun. Um, I'm definitely working on YouTube. I, I, I have a lot of podcasts out there now. And with the help of this, uh, this smart uh, fellow podcaster, Luke Caverns, <laughs> he's been uh, showing me how to turn my podcasts into videos using kind of, you know, Ken Burns effects where uh, text and images come in and out. So I'm, 
I'm going to slowly convert all my podcasts into videos. That's that's a big one that I'm working in 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 our line of work. In terms of uh, archaeology, I am doing really, you know, three things are really on my plate right now that I want to do, that I'm in the middle of doing. Uh, one of them is archaeoastronomy in Cambodia. I'm working on uh, ancient Khmer ruins like uh, Angkor and their knowledge of a uh, phenomena called zenith passage, the day that the sun goes directly over our head. Another one that I'm working on, I hope I'm continuing to work on, is uh, Easter Island. I'm in the process of making a map for the local Rapa Nui people, not for Chile, not for the government, not for me, but for them. And I'm I'm waiting to hear back and an invitation from them. Hopefully they'll, they'll uh, invite me back. I'm making a map not of the Moai, but of their actual villages and communities so they can understand more about their ancestors and not just, uh, you know, the, the 300th article in a row about the Moai. Exactly. And then the final one is I'm still working on trying to figure out how the Inca, uh, made those walls so tight that you can't even put a dime between the giant stones. I am convinced it's acids in one way or another, that they are melting them together. And one of these days, I'm going to get uh, one of those cities down there to uh, to let me take some core samples. Cusco's manager said, absolutely not. That's weird. No, you can't drill into our walls. I'm waiting him out. There'll be another manager someday. I'll hit him up. <laughs> <laughs> but those those are the three things. And after that, you know, I mean, I've I've already had a pretty good career. I figure I'm in my fifties now. After that, I'll just uh, retire into full time podcasting. And uh, you know, so many people have a bucket list of travel. My bucket list involves me hanging out in my garage for two years and making one of those museum dioramas. I've always wanted to do that. I'll just hang out and paint little trees for for two years. I think that would be super. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Before before I met my wife, I was very much a homebody, and then she got me the uh, she got me the travel bug, and then all of a sudden I realized, oh wow, it's such a such a big world out there. But then again, I didn't travel the same way that uh, a lot of other people have been able to. Well, Dr. Barnhart, thank you so much for the time. And I know we went a little over what we initially uh, thought we were going to, but I I hope you were able to get something out of this. I know I certainly did. And to anyone listening, uh, I can't recommend uh, Dr. Barnhart's projects enough. And thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Invite me again anytime. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And good luck with your growing podcast. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to Historical Diversions History Over Drinks. If you enjoyed this episode, your feedback would be greatly appreciated. Five-star reviews, positive comments, and even just telling your friends about us helps. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc. But the mothership is historicaldiversions.com. You can find show notes, ways to support, and other fun info on there. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was written and produced by your host through Historical Diversions, LLC. Any other rights belong to their respective owners.